him 608. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, of your great mercy in Jesus Christ, you have granted us forgiveness of sin and all things pertaining to life and godliness. Send us your Holy Spirit that he may so rule our hearts that we, being ever mindful of your fatherly mercy, may serve you in holiness and pureness of living and may give you continual thanks for all your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today is June 25th. It is, as indicated in the bullets in the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, 
I was struck by the realization that there are no propers, Old Testament, Epistle, Gospel, Collect, Introit, Gradual, Verse, no propers assigned for the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. In fact, it doesn't, uh, it, it will list it on the calendar, but it doesn't provide propers. I think that is a, a disappointing thing. Uh, I wasn't on the agenda committee. I wasn't on the uh, lectionary committee, only the agenda. Um, but it is a significant day. In fact, in, um, in many ways, in terms of the history of the church, the presentation of the Augsburg Confession and that document is more significant than the 95 Theses. In fact, the 95 Theses got the ball rolling, so to speak, but theologically, the meat and potatoes is in the small catechism of 1529 and the large catechism and then the Augsburg Confession of 1530. And one of the things that um, I think most Lutherans, and certainly most Christians are totally ignorant of, and but even Lutherans, you don't know the heritage, is that if I were to ask you, you know, what was your churchly heritage 600 years ago? Some of you might say, well, well, there wasn't a Lutheran church 1,600 years ago. But that's not the position of the Lutheran reformers at Augsburg. Our church goes back to the apostles. The next generation after that in the second century and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh, and the eighth, and the ninth, and the tenth, and the eleventh, and the twelfth, and the thirteenth, and the fourteenth. All of that is our history. That's what we say. It is all our confessional heritage. And one of the things that the Augsburg Confession does is the Augsburg Confession says this is not a new faith. That accusation, you want to leave or you want to establish a new, no, we do not. Quite the contrary. This is the old faith. This is the Catholic faith. The universal faith of every age. That's the position of the Lutherans. They were called evangelical princes centered in the gospel that went into Augsburg for that presentation of the confession on June 25th, 1530. In fact, I would go so far as to argue this. It's really a bad thing to talk about when you're talking about Reformation history, and you're talking about the 16th century. You know, 1517 is the posting of the 95 Theses. 1521, the Diet of Worms, where Luther is, uh, gives his Here I Stand speech, and then uh, prior, to, prior to that, he was excommunicated. After that, he is put under a death sentence. It is actually wrong to talk about the opposition to the Lutheran reformers as the Roman Catholic Church. 
because the Roman Catholic Church did not come into existence until the Council of Trent, which is after uh, the death of Luther. It is the Council of Trent that codified the works righteous abuses that the reformers were pointing out uh, as, a, as a derivation from the evangelical Catholic faith. The, the, the point I'm making here is the true Catholics are those that made the Augsburg Confession, June 25th, 1530. Now, to call them the papists at the time, because Pope Leo X, for example, excommunicated Luther for daring to teach that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by the works of the law. Which happens to be, it's like he condemned Luther using language whereby he quoted almost verbatim the Apostle Paul. But I think most people think, even Lutherans, that the Lutheran church came into existence, um, you know, with the posting of the 95 Theses or the events of 1529 uh, and 1530 with the Catechisms and the Augsburg Confession. But actually, uh, the Lutheran Church has been in existence since the time of the Apostles. Okay? Uh, and uh, that's a perspective that, well, I don't think, I don't think many will accept, but. Larry? Oh, I have always known that Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. Well, see, that's why I want you to get. But so it goes back to the 1400s, but the Roman Catholic Church. No, see, see, this is what I'm trying to say. The Western Church is our church. See, Pope Leo X is our bishop. Okay? Pope Gregory is our bishop. Okay? No, not 15. No, I did not say that. The Roman Catholic Church was codified by the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is what established the Roman Catholic Church as a denomination. Every pope, every pope, the bishop of Rome, throughout the Middle Ages, was the bishop of our church body. That's what I'm trying to say. See, it, to get away from the idea that there was no faith and then the Lutheran church came into being, no, no. The Catholic, this is part of our heritage. I remember in medieval church history with Dr. Weinrich, the first lecture was all about, this is about your church history. Okay, That's our church history. So all of the fathers of the ancient church, Augustine you know, or Tertullian or any of these people, those are our church fathers. It would be wrong to look at them as they were Roman Catholic church fathers, and we didn't have any church fathers until Martin Luther. Okay? 
the Lutheran Church repeatedly asserts, and this is the backbone, foundational assertion of the Augsburg Confession, that this is not a new confession. This is what the church has always confessed. And then the catalog of testimonies which they prepared as supporting documentation gave evidence of that from councils and church fathers for 1,500 years. See? 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 Okay, uh, Randy, then Paul. I was just going to say, Issues Etc. reposted a very nice, roughly hour-long um, discussion by Dr. Detlef Schultz from Concordia, or from the Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne earlier this week that gives a really nice layout of all of the background as well as the confessional side of, of this. Yep, I listened to it yesterday. Detlef Schultz. Uh, regarding the uh, split in 1054 with the East and the West, uh, does the Lutheran Church have a position today, say, what our relation might be with, say, the Russian Orthodox Church? Do we have a particular position on what our relationship would be with the uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and then we got various branches, Russian Orthodoxy. Well, we're not in fellowship with those uh, church bodies. Um, so what would our position be to rejoice in wherever the truth of the gospel, even in those communions, is uh, confessed? And then point out uh, errors where, where they exist. I mean, there's a lot of things with the uh, orthodoxy that it's quite removed from our context in the West, but what has developed since, uh, particularly I would say the time of the Reformation forward, is a skewing of orthodoxy away from the, the atonement, the centrality of the atonement, um, away from an understanding uh, with that then of the wrath of God that is appeased on Calvary, a diminution of the doctrine of original sin. This is all part of uh, the heritage of orthodoxy. Uh, to what extent would you argue that the Fourth Lateran Council has a role in establishing the Roman Catholic Church? To what extent would I, uh, what are the dates of the Fourth Lateran Council? 1215 and is the start, I, I don't remember. Yeah, and I think that's the position taken over against the East. It also uh, codifies certain things like the celibacy of priests and uh, reception in one kind is codified in latter and fourth. Uh, in direct opposition to um, over a thousand years of testimony by the church prior to that. So, what's that? I agree, but that's well before Trent. It is, it, it, true enough, but Trent doubles down on the Fourth Lateran Council. Okay. Um, so, I would say the Fourth Lateran Council is a, is reflecting at that moment in the church's history where we were at but it's problematic. And that the Lutheran 
uh, confession is seen in the, the millennia before that. Jim? As Professor Marquardt so eloquently always pointed out and emphasized that it is the Augsburg, unaltered Augsburg Confession that defines the Lutheran Church, as does the formula of Concord. They say we are by no means coming out with a new, new uh, confession. We are supporting the Augsburg Confession. And it's interesting to note that if you go into Milwaukee with those older churches from the 18 and early 1900s, on the cornerstone, they have the date of their foundation and then UAC. U period, A period, C, unaltered Augsburg Confession, right. So you really should um, um, look up the Augsburg Confession, your Book of Concord, and read the assertions there. I think it's, it's significant. The, the other thing I'll comment on, the, I, I listened to a podcast this week that suggested using Matthew 10, uh, 26 through 33, which had large overlap with the gospel you had that just this Wednesday. So I thought maybe that was the inspiration for that choice of the gospel, but. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, th there's, nothing, there's nothing in LSB agenda in terms of propers for it. All right, so a little controversy for you. Uh, let's go to 1 Timothy 1.15, which is the verse for the week. It is taken from this week's epistle. Uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The words of the Apostle Paul uh, reflecting upon his conversion with Timothy. Let's speak those uh, words together. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. All right. Chief or foremost of sinners. Now, um, a faithful saying, it is worthy of acceptance by all. And here's the saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Uh, Paul makes this uh, confession that he is the chief of sinners and that the word or saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is of paramount significance for every Christian. And that he, the background of the 1 Timothy 1.15, is where he says that his own call and election to salvation by God is done as an example or pattern of the grace of God for all sinners, for all humanity. So, for the sake of the salvation of the worst of sinners, God chose me, the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners, to be held up as an example that if 
if God can save Paul, his name was Saul, he took on the name Paulus, but if God can save Saul, then he can save Steve Lesage. Okay? And so he becomes an example of the grace of God for an unworthy and an undeserved sinner. Okay? So all of these verses for the week uh, throughout the summer will be taken from the propers uh, for the Sunday as this one is. So we speak it one more time. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then Psalm 103, which we prayed in the divine service between the Old Testament epistle, uh, 1 through 13, is the psalm for the week. The catechesis notes uh, continue to talk about the narrative from Matthew's gospel. I also wanted to tell you that if you, in your home devotions on Matthew's gospel, um, are, you know, if questions occur to you, you're welcome to bring them to a Sunday morning. Okay? And then we're going to go to Genesis 22, but let, let me make one other comment about this presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Why is this important? And I, I guess Matthew's uh, bringing up the Fourth Lateran Council um, is significant. I think we have, had, we have had, as part of our heritage, the unfortunate unwillingness to understand that um, the, the struggle for the truth of doctrine and of the gospel continues in the church of all times and of all places. And I certainly believe, or I would not have taken my ordination vows, that the three ecumenical creeds, Apostles Nicene, Athanasian, the Augsburg Confession and Apology, the small and large catechisms, the small called articles, treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope and the formula of Concord. There you have it. There's the book of Concord. I certainly believe that those confessions are absolutely faithful to the scriptures. And I subscribe to them because they're a faithful exposition to the scriptures. Having said that, I think there's been a tendency uh, among Lutherans to, how should we say, take an all or nothing point of view towards other Christians in this regard. If they're not Lutheran, then they're impure and damned to hell. If they're Lutheran, then they're pure as the wind-driven snow, and there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, yeah. The old joke sometimes told about the Wisconsin Synod, you know, go to heaven, that's their room, they think they're the only ones here. Now, but let me clarify this. No one is saved apart from the truth of the gospel and true faith in Christ, okay? Uh, so it's not like, well, close enough. The point that I'm making is that 
the, the history of the church, just go all the way back to the time of the apostles, was a time in which there is struggle to confess the truth. So you've got the apostle Peter who says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. For which Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When I say, thou art Peter, and upon this rock of a confession I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Jesus goes on to say, immediately following, how he must suffer and die. And Peter, the first pope, says, God forbid, this must never happen. To which Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. So I think if we don't understand the struggle that is within each of us and within each congregation, synod, now denominational church body, then we can never identify this is truth and this is, uh, this is error. Nor can we engage in, I think, proper conversation with those with whom we disagree. Okay. So uh, I think this is actually arguing for the truth. You have in the New Testament Paul having to say that he had to oppose Peter to his face in Galatians because of the things that he was doing that were denying the gospel. Does that mean then that Peter should be consigned to permanent exile and excommunication? No. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said many things that were not good. He was a child of his age and influenced by his age. So we don't accept the things that are not good or that conflict with the truth. However, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said some things that were good. But I had an editor of a certain newspaper um, come after me because I dared to say anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, you know, prayer is not bending God's will to our will, but asking him to make his will ours. That happens to be the truth. Oh, but it came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he denied certain things, so anathema. If we do that, then we've got to take the New Testament. We've got to get rid of First and Second Peter. We've got to get rid of Paul's letters because he was formerly a blasphemer. We've got, we have nothing left. So this Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. At the heart of being a sinner is heresy. Okay? So Christ Jesus came into the world to save heretics, of whom I am the chief heretic. I mean, Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus and was marshaled against destroying the church, it was heresy. That the heart of sin is heresy. So this, this dichotomy that we often speak about, that we're at the same time a saint and a sinner, means a believer and an unbeliever, a false teacher and an orthodox confessor. And I think it, it's very important. This is what, like when people come to me and they want to receive communion, I ask them, first of all, have they been baptized? You know, in whose name? Do you believe that you're a sinner? 
And what have you deserved from God because of your sin? What did, in whom do you trust for your salvation? What does Christ give you in the sacrament? So if they say, yeah, I've been baptized in the name of the triune God with water, and I believe that I'm a sinner, I deserve punishment, but Christ died for me and shed his blood for me, and then I believe he gives me his true body and blood in the sacrament, where do you go to church? Well, I go to such and such ELCA church. Then I can say, I rejoice in your confession of faith, that you have been baptized, that you believe in Christ, that you trust he gives you his true body and blood in the sacrament. So that in that I rejoice, but I'm going to ask you not to commune because your church, as a church body, doesn't support your confession by denying foundational truths of the Christian faith, like the miracles of Jesus, the authority of the scriptures. In many cases, the, the uh, virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So I can rejoice in your confession. Hold on to that. But you need to be connected to a church that's going to feed and nurture that confession. Okay. So I think we're very, um, we have a hesitancy to rejoice in the truth whenever we find it. So if you find, if you're, if you have a Pentecostal at work, charismatic Pentecostal, very emotional driven, okay, I know you know that your faith does not rest upon experience, but upon the objective word. But if the Pentecostal or the charismatic confesses faith in Jesus, rejoice in that. Unless you say, oh, they're a Pentecostal, forget them. I only go, with, I only go out to drink beer with my confessional Lutheran, you know, I don't, I don't associate with any of those Pentecostals. I think that is fundamentally a denial of the gospel. And it breaks down communication. So, anyway, that's part of the reason that I wanted to talk about a little bit about the Augsburg Confession on this day. Je uh, Genesis 22. So Isaac was born after they waited 25 years, and now he's old enough to carry wood, and he's old enough to talk. He's probably somewhere between 10 and 40. Because <laughs> after you turn 40, you start losing the ability to talk. No, that's, but that's what, that's what uh, uh, commentators uh, say about these things. So it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham said, no way, I've waited a lot of years for this kid to be born. I'm not about to sacrifice him now. No, that's not what he says. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now when you think of third day, what do you think about in the Bible? Resurrection, okay? And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you, although I don't really mean we, I only mean me, because Isaac will be dead and I'll have to bury him after he's slaughtered. Now that's not what it says. We, the lad and I, will go yonder in worship, and we, the lad and I, will come back to you. Okay? I think you need to take Abraham's words at face value. He is going to worship because the Lord told him to sacrifice Isaac. And he's going with Isaac to worship. And then he says that we will come back to you. So he believes Isaac will be sacrificed because the Lord told him to sacrifice him. But he also believes what will happen to Isaac. He will be raised from the dead. Now I know he believes that because of what we have elsewhere in the scriptures. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is right before the book of James. Now what, what the apostle does in Hebrews in this great list of believers, verse 4 talks about Abel's sacrifice was offered by faith. Enoch was translated. He did not die, but he was taken up. Noah uh, warned of things to come by faith. Verse 8 by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place of which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 11 says, by faith, Sarah received strength to conceive. And then moving forward to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, namely Abraham, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Accounting or reckoning, Abraham reckoned, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. When the ram was caught into a thicket, 
And the angel of the Lord said, don't harm the lad. So according to this, Abraham concluded that if Isaac is sacrificed, Isaac will rise from the dead. Why? Because of the promise in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So the line of salvation in the sons of the promise, the seed of Abraham, is through Isaac. So he must live. He must live. That is, that is Abraham's conclusion. Even if he dies, yet shall he live. So if God tells me to sacrifice him, he will die, but God will raise him from the dead because God said it must be through Isaac. Okay? That's the radical kind of faith. Faith has an object, and finally, after lo these many decades, Abraham is stripped of self-reliance to rely upon the Lord and his promise alone, even if it seems to contradict human reason. Okay, so the lad and I will go yonder, and we will come back to you. Verse 6, back to Genesis 22, verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. You think about, take up your cross and follow me. So here he's carrying the wood, which is going to result in his own sacrifice. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Or it could be a goat. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Now, who brought forth Isaac in the first place? The Lord did. Yeah, I know, Sarah conceived from Abraham's seed, but it was the Lord who by his promise had done these things. So here, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. God provided Isaac in the first place according to the promise. And in terms of the lamb for sacrifice, Abraham doesn't simply say, God will provide a lamb. But God will provide for himself, the reflexive pronoun there. In other words, the very lamb that God demanded, or the very sacrifice that God demanded, God himself finished the sentence. Provided, You see, God demanded the lamb. Remember, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Sounds like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God will provide for himself the lamb. The lamb that God demanded, the sacrifice that God demanded, God himself provided. That's the point. So Abraham's words are significant 
because he doesn't merely say God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, but rather the lamb that God demanded, God himself will provide. And I submit to you that that is a confession of the heart of the gospel itself. In other words, what was demanded of us because of our sin? Uh, punishment, right? Atonement. So the atonement that was demanded by God for our sin, God himself provided. And we've got a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was given by God. Prior to the giving of that sacrificial system, you've got at the Red Sea, the children of Israel are being pursued by the Egyptians. They're trapped between the two cliffs. The Red Sea is ahead of them. Stand still and see the salvation which the Lord will provide for you. For the Egyptians whom you see, you will see no more. So the salvation that God demands, God himself provides. The sacrifice or atonement that God demands, God himself will provide. So Abraham makes this confession even before uh, Isaac is tied down to the wood of the altar. So then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood, and stretched, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Why did Abraham do these things? Build the altar, put the wood, put his son on it. Angela? God told him. Faith believes the word. Nothing more, nothing less. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Again, notice, take your son, your only son whom you love. You've not withheld your son, your only son from me. So here we see Abraham looks like a picture of whom? God the father, and Isaac looks like a picture of the son of the father, namely Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand the words here. Now I know. Does that mean that God did not know the faith of Abraham's heart before this? No, it doesn't. But this word for knowing is a significant word. It's not the knowing of knowledge that goes from ignorance to enlightenment. It's rather the knowing whereby in the experience something is revealed. Okay? It's the knowing whereby in the experience something is revealed. Okay? So God, through this experience, by calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, reveals for our knowing something that was only previously known to God. Okay? Two ways. Previously known to God, he knew the faith of Abraham's heart that it was in the promise exclusively. 
by calling him to sacrifice Isaac, then that is revealed to us, that we might know what God knows. Okay? Secondly, in those revelations, then, you see the content of the Christian faith, that it is in the sacrifice which God himself provides for sin, according to the promise, and the promise is the gospel. Okay? So, now I know that you do not... Now I know that you fear God. Then Abraham uh, lifted his eyes, verse 13, and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, is the ram that was caught the true lamb which the Lord provided for himself? Well, yes and and no. Isaac, is Isaac the, the son of the promise? Yes and no. Okay, he is one of many sons of the promise, but the ultimate son of the promise is Jesus, okay? The lamb, the ram was provided by God, but is he the real thing? No, he is but a picture of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But in both cases, whether it was, uh, who provided Isaac? The conception of Isaac in Sarah's womb. The Lord did, okay? Every son of the promise was born according to the promise. So also the sacrifices. Who provided them? The Lord did. But every one of them finally finds its fulfillment then in Christ. So look at how verse 14 then. So you've got this idea of blessed exchange, happy exchange. The, the ram takes Isaac's place in token of the greater lamb will take our place according to the promise in Jesus. So verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place. I help God out a lot with this whole thing. <laughs> no, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now Moriah is believed by many to be Jerusalem and specifically Calvary, where Jesus was sacrificed. So on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. So he swears by the integrity and authority of who he is as the one who provides life and now the one who provides salvation. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." And the obedience of which he is talking about is the obedience of faith in the promise. 
So Abraham is justified by faith, but his faith is seen in the obedience to the command. Got that? Abraham is justified by faith in the promise, but his faith in the promise is seen in the obedience to the command. If he didn't believe the promise, would he have taken the wood? Would he have taken the fire? Would he have gone up to Mount Moriah with his son? Would he have, would he have confessed to his son, the Lord will provide for himself? Would he, have, would he have told his servants, the lad and I will worship and we will come back to you? No. So there's a tight relationship in the actions that he does, the obedience of faith. And that's what this is called. It's referred to this way in the letter to the Hebrews that talks about faith. To obey is to believe. But out of the belief, there flows action. See, so it'd be like this. Why do you come to baptism and bring your children to baptism? Because you believe in the promise. That's the pro why, are you, why are you coming to the Lord's Supper this morning? Because you believe. Okay, so the obedience to the command, do this in remembrance of me, or go and make disciples of all nations, is the obedience of faith. Now I make this uh, point to distinguish or, or to, to, to um, counter any notion that Abraham was justified by his works. Not before God. Before us, yes. In other words, you see that he lives by faith. You come to know that because you see the obedience of faith in his actions. So I said, God did not need to have this exercise to know the faith of his heart. He knew the faith of his heart but he reveals the faith of his heart to us that we might learn something of the gospel that the Lord provides for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering. Okay? As the Lord provides for himself, his son who will suffer and die for our sins. Um, questions or comments? Yep. Um, would you maybe clarify how we might properly understand uh, only son in the context of Ishmael having been? Good. Yeah. How can it say only son in the context we know Ishmael exists and he's a son? He is the only son born, finish the sentence, according to the promise. Okay. Um, Ishmael is called a son of the bondwoman in Galatians, or the son of works, as opposed to Isaac, who's the son of the promise, or the son of grace. Does that make sense? Okay. Other questions? Beth. Or Amy, sorry. Beth is here, Amy is there. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on the word know when you, you talked about um, this knowing okay. um, where God said... Who's the man next to you? Robert. I, I was thinking 
where <laughs> Joseph did not know Mary when Jesus was conceived. And that's an intimate relationship. And I'm wondering, is, is God saying that now I know, indicating that now Abraham is an intimate relationship with God because of his faith and because of the promise? Does that make sense? Yeah, um. Um, the, I'm trying, trying to, to understand say, this yes, word. Yes, no. God knew. I'm trying to figure out a, a new way to say it to help. Um, did we know? Did we know fully the nature and content? of faith in the promise made to Abraham. But now we know because God has revealed this to us. What I was trying to speak against is you don't think God knows all things. He knows the faith of Abraham's heart. He doesn't, that it's in the promise. He doesn't need to do this exercise for his benefit. Like a teacher who gives a test so that she can find out what the child knows, whether he's mastered the subject matter. God already knows that, okay? Um, so in this exercise, he reveals what he knows to the rest of us. Does that part make sense? Now. Your talk, your discussion about communion, um, I mean, he is in communion with Abraham and Abraham with him through faith and by faith in the promise. That is true. The manifestation of that is made known to others that we might know what God knows, that we might know the relationship of faith that Abraham has with God and vice versa. Does that make sense? It's an interesting expression, you know, but it's not like I got to see if Abraham really believes because I don't know. And then he calls it, I guess he does. Now I know. It's not that kind of a thing. Okay. These expressions are, are sometimes difficult. It's just like obey here. I mean, sometimes people who believe that God saves them on account of their obedience, you know, like by works, um, can then hear this, because you have obeyed me, then I will do this. But it's the obedience that flows from faith not the obedience whereby we trust in that as if it is our work. Does that make sense? Just like going to the Lord's Supper. It, but this is a, a problem of the Middle Ages, you know, but it still is a problem today. Um, our coming to church is a work, isn't it? Because we got to wake up to the alarm or to the cows, uh, get them done and then come, you know. 
uh, and coming, walking up to the sacrament and kneeling, you know, these are all the words. And, and that's the way, for many, they see it. They see it, the, the mass and participation in the mass is their work for which God then blesses them. Like the Old Testament. I, I was taught that about the Old Testament as a kid. The Old Testament sacrificial system was their work. That's why it had to go away, because you're not saved by your works. But that was wrong, because the Old Testament worship was God's divine service in the Old Testament. Yeah, they participated in it, but it pointed forward to God's divine service in the New Testament in Christ's blood. So just because we do something doesn't mean that God is, you know, uh, that our works are saving us or he's rewarding us on the basis of what we've done. Those, that's the obedience that flows from faith. Okay. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because he believed he could get to the other side. Jordan? Could this be uh, compared in similar to personal, our own lives, about how God tests us in our faith and just everything that happens in our daily lives? that he knows what is truly in our hearts, but yet he still has us go through these trials uh, of our faith yes, in our the, regular the, life. The, the testing there the is not because God doesn't know. In the case of, of Job, he knew. If he didn't know the nature of the faith that he had created in Job's heart, then it would have been a, a very cruel thing because it could have resulted in his damnation. He knew what was in Job's heart, but he puts them to the, him to the test, as it were, to reveal that to the rest of us so that we might know the nature of that faith. Okay. Oh, it is past time. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.